0: Welcome back to IHC's Navigating Within podcast. My name is Dino and I'm your host. Providing high quality, safe medical care is the primary goal of health systems. So when the public is alerted to quality failures, such as preventable medication errors resulting in patient harm or death, concerns about the quality of health care arise. As experts in medication delivery, pharmacists play an integral role in preventing and managing medication errors. However, ensuring safety in the health system is a team effort. With me today is Matt Pitlick. For those of you who didn't listen to our first podcast together, Dr. Pitlick is IHC's medication management lead here at IHC. Uh, just a little background on him. He's a 2008 graduate of the Drake University College of Pharmacy and Science. He's completed a PGY1 residency with the VA, St. Louis Healthcare System. He was an associate professor from about 2009 to 2017, and he completed his executive fellowship in association management with the Iowa Pharmacy Association. Welcome, Matt. Thanks for joining us for our second podcast together.
1: Thanks for having me back, Dino.
0: Great. Today's topic is quality measures. Uh, We're going to dive into a few hand quality measures that we've been recently getting some questions about. To start this off, in your opinion, what role does a pharmacist play when it comes to quality measures in both the inpatient and the outpatient setting?
1: Sure. The the pharmacist can be one of your biggest advocates in the ADE core measures, of course, because we're talking about medications and and bad things that happen with medications. We don't want a bad thing to happen with medications, uh, but oftentimes they do. And so a pharmacist can be that person to, one, be the person to prevent uh, ADEs, or if one does happen, we can kind of, you know, go through the system root cause analysis and figure out why this ADE happened and put a system in place to prevent them from happening again. Right. Today, we're going to be looking at specifically two adverse drug
0: event ADE measures. The first one that we're going to talk about is blood glucose below 50, so this is a HIN measure that we've gotten some questions about. Can you just generally speak to this measure? How can a pharmacist engage specifically in this one?
1: Sure. And I think this one, you know, as time has passed, we see more and more patients with diabetes that ha- are being admitted for to the hospital for a variety of reasons, not just diabetes. But because of that, we're seeing maybe a little increase in this uh, ADE measure uh, because of that specific patient population increase you can utilize your pharmacist to improve this measure. Of course, one being uh, following the ISMP recommendations for all the uh, specific pharmacy labeling requirements and, you know, one unit per one patient, one dose per one patient, all that sort of stuff. I think that gets drilled into a lot of people's heads, especially the pharmacist, because those are joint commission requirements that that need to be handled. And if you have a visit with that pharmacy, they will definitely look at all that stuff and make sure that that, uh, those things are being followed. But I think one of the more important things To do in addition to following all the ISMP recommendations is an appropriate medication reconciliation. And with that, we know when patients are admitted to the hospital, you know, there usually are discrepancies within that patient's medication regimen. And if a patient's taking insulin, you know, how often is a dose of insulin being changed on a patient, especially when they're, you know, trying to make changes themselves, improving diet, improving lifestyle? That patient might have a, a dose change of insulin that the hospital doesn't know about. And it, without doing a proper medication reconciliation, there's no way to know. Is that a pharmacist or a nurse is going to have to call the outpatient pharmacy or figure out exactly what's going on to make sure that that dose that that patient that is on the hospital is, is the same one that the patient's on when they're at home.
0: Is this something that a pharmacist can engage in specifically, or how can that in a care team, how do you ensure that you're having appropriate med recs?
1: Um, yeah, I think, I think this is a great question. It depends on the philosophy of the hospital. I think, you know, sometimes it's pharmacy driven, sometimes it's nursing driven and however you do it. Great. Um, just make sure that you're doing it the, the right way and not just going through the motions of, you know, a little outpatient check, Inpatient meds, click over. You're good. Um, you want to make sure that, especially on the insulin doses, that you're using the you're using the appropriate doses. Like I say, because those doses change so much, and the prescription bottles don't change their doses along with them, or the vials don't change their doses along with it.
0: Yeah. Speaking about insulin, in your experience, what do you think are some of the best practices for insulin in critical and non-critical settings?
1: Sure. Lots of different ways to think about insulin in the hospital. One of the more dangerous medications, like we've talked about with the ADE measure. Let's start with the the critical settings first because this tends to be a little bit more formalized in the way insulin is used. For the most part, insulin in the critical setting is going to be administered via a continuous IV infusion. And so hopefully your hospitals, health systems have a protocol that you put in place that the PNT committee regularly reviews for those patients that get a continuous IV infusion of insulin while they're in the critical care setting. And so you're adjusting the, blood, the insulin based off of a blood sugar while that patient is in, in critical care. And so that tends to be, you know, it's a heavier lift on, on the nurse's part. It's for monitoring blood sugars and and adjusting the infusion rate and all that sort of stuff. So, but your hospital should have those things in place. If not, I'm sure you can ask your friends, your colleagues at other hospitals and health systems for those if, if needed, or us at IHC for those things as well that we can get out to you. Of course, always in those settings, you should have some reversal agents, glucagon to get that blood sugar back up just in case anything does happen in terms of hypoglycemic events in those critical care patients. A lot of times we think nutrition in the critical care setting as well. So that patient might be on enteral nutrition or parenteral nutrition in those critical care settings. And and those patients still need some insulin and they can actually be utilizing a a basal and prandial type of uh, insulin regimen versus an IV infusion. Um, It's a little less intense on the nursing part. um, So they can, if they are getting some sort of nutrition, whether it be enteral or parenteral, can also use a more conventional type of insulin regimen um, versus an IV infusion of it. Now, if we move over towards the non-critical setting, typically we want to use a basal insulin such as glargine or detimer along with a prandial insulin. So basal meaning a slower acting insulin, longer acting insulin that covers the full day versus a prandial insulin, such as Humalog and Novolog, which covers the mealtime. And and typically that's what we wanna use during a a non-critical setting. Of course, what's critical and what's important to remember when we're using that is the patient's nutritional intake while they're in the hospital. And because of that, the nutrition, the diet that the patient eats outside of the hospital is going to be very different from from inside the hospital usually. So we have to take a lot of that into consideration. So the, the patient's diet might, uh, you know, not might not be so good when they're when they're at home, right? They might be yeah. chips. And they might be, and that's why they're in the hospital, right? They're, they're eating a lot of salt, eating a lot of chips, eating, you know, diet heavy in bread and carbs and pastas. And, and that's why their you know, blood sugars are 400, 500, And they're in the hospital because they got DKA and now they're transitioning, transitioning down. And so you get them in the hospital, they're on, you know, they got their veggies and their fruits and their meats and eating a nice, uh, uh, you know, full course meal and their blood sugars are changing. And so you really have to be careful and, and very watchful in, in how that patient's responding to, to their food and their diet.
0: So we know diet is important from what you're stressing. How can facilities manage these patients going from a weekly insulin to perhaps insulin pumps then?
1: Yeah, this this one's a tough question because in the last 5 years, I would say the world of diabetes has had the most change in terms of technology and in terms of pharmaceutical, you know, advances with higher doses of insulin being made in smaller concentrations, essentially. So there's a lot more instead of just U100 insulin, which is typically what we think of in terms of, you know, the conventional insulin that we have, there's also U200 and U300 and U500 insulin. So you're getting super concentrated doses of insulin. And and kind of going back to that first question, you know, you want to watch those concentrations of insulin to make sure you're not giving the wrong dose of insulin to a patient. You don't want to be giving uh, you know, two times, three times, five times the dose of insulin on a patient in, in those situations. So things we got to watch for there, you know, in, in advances, tremendous advances in in terms of continuous glucose monitoring and insulin pump therapy. I'd say the majority of type one patients with diabetes are using an insulin pump now. And so it's, it's somewhat difficult to transfer that once they're in the hospital, if they're in the hospital to something that the hospital staff can can utilize. And so I think the the best scenario, if you have the availability, find an expert, find an endocrinologist, a clinical pharmacist who deals with patients with diabetes on an exclusive basis, somebody who is board certified in advanced diabetes management, uh, VCADM, I think would be a great person to have help you on this. So in those types of patients, that's the type of person I think that should be managing. those. If you don't, of course, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's the bulk of you, right? You don't have access to that. Your pharmacist, say they're patients on a fairly concentrated dose of insulin or on a weekly dose, they can calculate um, doses for you based on the half-life of that medicine when they expect it to be out of this patient's system essentially and calculate a dose for you so you can get that patient onto a daily dose of insulin while they're in the hospital if needed. Um, So there are some ways that you can maneuver and clinically problem solve your way to a dose where you can keep the patient safe, but also uh, make sure that their blood sugar doesn't skyrocket while trying to help that patient out. Absolutely.
0: What do you think are some factors that result in hypoglycemia, and what can we do to prevent or limit those things? From sure. Happening? So the
1: the, the biggest of course, is going to be medicine. The, the medicines you give um, a patient is going to be the biggest cause. Um, typically, insulin is going to be the number one cause. The other t- cause, um, and especially this is for patients with type 2 diabetes who often come in with sulfonylureas such as gliburide or glipizide or glimepiride, those often cause hypoglycemia, especially in patients who come to the hospital who may not have had a meal you know, within four or five, six hours when they just took a dose of glipizide or glimepiride and that caused them to be low. That's just going to perpetuate the the hypoglycemia. So we see those. Other things to watch for too, patients with diabetes, they don't just have diabetes. They're going to have comorbid conditions, often hypertension, heart disease, those sorts of things. Patients who take beta blockers, their symptoms of hypoglycemia can often be masked. So you're not going to see the sweating and the uh, shakiness, all that sort of stuff. What you'll see is just a dip in their blood sugar and that's it. And, and you have to be careful with that. So patients, especially on, on higher doses of, of beta blockers, all those symptoms of hypoglycemia can be, can be masked along with it. Other things to watch for too, um, especially this is patients who might come in with acute kidney injury or have chronic kidney disease. Insulin and many of the diabetes medicines are uh, eliminated through the kidney. And if your kidneys are damaged or, or being damaged, you're not removing the insulin. You're not removing the medicine. It's hanging around longer, which can cause uh, hypoglycemic events. So those are the type of things that I typically think of. And those are things you can watch for.
0: Thank you very much, man. All the questions that I've been asking have been questions that have been uh, coming in from our hospitals through our clinical quality consultants. So these questions are, are directly from them. So I think they're going to appreciate the input you have.
1: Fantastic. Kudos to you guys. Hopefully it all is helping. And if you have any questions, feel free to reach out anytime.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think I did a podcast with Carrie Seddon here as well. And we talked about diabetes and diabetes management. So we have a lot of very highly skilled and highly educated people at IHC, Matt Pitlick and Carrie Seddon that are experts in in these things, especially. So if you have any questions about any measure in specific, please feel free to email us and let us know.
1: Can I add one thing to that? Yeah, Dana? No, I- and this is in terms of discharge planning for those patients, oftentimes there's gonna be a change to diabetes medicine. Maybe you had to hold metformin for a couple days while that patient was getting ready for a test and they got that test and then now they're ready to go home. Please, please make sure that that patient knows the discharge plans, uh, restart that metformin and not to belabor the point, but really let the, let the community pharmacist know in addition to their primary care provider what the discharge plans are so that pharmacist can reach back out, make sure that that patient's on metformin again or on the correct dose of insulin that they, that would be from the hospital discharge to what is at home. Because oftentimes they're going to have another vial of insulin at home that has another dose, a set of instructions on it. And so if you want that community pharmacist to be that care coordinator to really help help that out, that would be a fantastic idea because oftentimes the patient is going to end up seeing the pharmacist prior to primary care provider on a discharge. So if that's something that, that can be done um, in addition to some of those things that you're doing, that I, that could go a long way to help out maybe readmissions that happen and a variety of other things that that could happen, um, including adverse drug events.
0: I think that goes back to our first podcast, Matt, where we talk about the coordination, yes, right? Absolutely. So I think making sure that if there's changes in medication, that those are communicated with the community pharmacists and everyone that's involved in the care team. I think that's super important. Absolutely. We're going to go on to our next measure. This measure is INR greater than five. So we've had some questions come in about this measure too that we just want to go over. Matt, uh, what do you think the pharmacist role is in warfarin therapy?
1: Sure. It's a fantastic question kind of goes back to our first podcast too when we talked about you know clinical pharmacy and the advent of clinical pharmacy anticoagulation really was the first disease state that clinical pharmacists ended up owning that's because nobody else wanted to do it because it's really hard (laughs) really hard (laughs) really hard stuff uh and you know if we go back to warfarin and coumadin really um it was invented a long time ago back in the 30s is when it was invented but it really didn't get a medical use until really the 50s and 60s, um, and so that's really when the clinical pharmacy movement started. And they used anticoag, and specifically warfarin, because there was nothing else around at the time, right? To to be that you know advocate for and really be the clinical person to to do that. So, I think clinical pharmacists and pharmacists should be involved in all, every, every aspect of warfarin. And so, and even in many academic medical centers, pharmacists manage full anticoagulation programs. When I was a clinical pharmacist at the VA. I managed a 500-person anticoag, outpatient anticoag clinic, along with a few other clinical pharmacists. It was just us. So we had, once that patient got a diagnosis of whatever condition was, AFib, VTE, valve replacement, that was referred to the clinical pharmacist immediately for dosing, initial dosing, maintenance, follow-up, INR, CBC, all laboratory stuff that you needed, everything, education along with it. So it was fully managed by, by clinical pharmacists. That'd be the ideal scenario.
0: Do you see that as a, a positive, as in, of course, yeah, of as course a I you know. <laughs> but I think as I think I in, in terms of, do you see that as something that maybe you wouldn't have seen 15, 20 years ago?
1: I would say in places that were not academic medical centers where, you know, students running around, medical residents running around, you know, full teams, I'd say that would be outside the norm. And ended up being nurses, nurse practitioners that managed a lot of patients. And as much as you can do a team-based approach, I think that is an ideal scenario as well. Beneficial, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely.
0: Um, we have a ton of questions about lab draws. What are your recommendations on the frequency of lab draws when an INR is identified as greater than five?
1: Sure, this is the great it depends question. The it depends question. <laughs> That's right. It always depends. But INR above five, that's your, that's your cutoff for your core measure in, in this instance. In ideal scenarios, you know if that patient's maintained very well INR between two and three for greater than six months, you could go every 12 weeks with an INR draw. That's the most you're going to see recommended, or the, the vast majority of time, times you'll see recommended every four weeks. But there's a lot of studies now showing every 12 weeks for those who are well-controlled. For those who are uncontrolled... Um, maybe between three and five, four weeks, every, every two to four weeks there. But above five, that's a little bit different scenario. In the outpatient setting, if the patient's not bleeding, no risk for bleeding, I would recommend maybe check-in in three to four days. And this goes back to the uh, pharmacology of, of warfarin, a very complicated pharmacology. So we think of warfarin, it is technically, so we think of it as a blood thinner, um, but that's not really how it works it's not it doesn't high risk
0: high risk or no oh yeah very very high high
1: risk warfarin is a very high risk medication and we'll talk about that all throughout this this farm we're gonna give a little pharmacology review here great i'm excited okay we'll see so uh, warfarin is a vitamin k antagonist which gets into a lot of different things people talk about about food and vitamin k but what it does is it inhibits an enzyme a vitamin k dependent enzyme in the clotting cascade and so once it irreversibly inhibits this enzyme you stop making clotting factors. And so you don't clot as well, you don't clot as fast, etc. And like I said, this irreversibly inhibits these clotting factors. Let's go back to here. You think of usually how long a medicine goes through the body as the half-life of the medicine and how that's how long it'll work for. Well, in warfarin, that's not how it works because everything is dependent on the clotting factors. And so the clotting factors and their half-time decide how long the the medicine works and the clotting factors half-life really depends on the clotting factors and and a few other things on on the patient, but it can vary between really 20 and 80 hours as the half-life. And so you're looking, you know, three, four or five days before medicine's gone out the body by 50%. And so that's why I wouldn't recommend another check unless the patient is at as a high risk of bleeding for another three, three to four days while on the outpatient side. On the inpatient side, it's a little different. One, cause you can check, right? That's another, that's sure. a nice thing. Yeah, you, can right? it's, you have the availability to check. But also if they're in the hospital, there's probably a higher chance of bleeding for a variety of reasons. And I would check, depend, again, depending on the situation, maybe that patient needs to go to surgery for some reason. You wanna check a little quicker, right? So you get that patient into surgery. Or if that patient was at a high risk of, of bleeding, and so you gave them a reversal agent, you gave them vitamin K, or you gave them fresh frozen plasma or prothrombin complex concentrate, you'd want to check sooner than later. So every four, six, 12 hours, it, you know, those variation points of, of by the time that you gave that that medicine or when you're waiting for that patient to go to surgery for a life-threatening condition, et cetera. Now, if patient's just in there for you know, whatever reason, not life threatening. If that INR is above five, you could get away with, you know, checking the next day. Absolutely. Great. It
0: is the ultimate it depends question. Does it depend when we're looking at trying to prevent errors in dosing, or is that kind of a general guideline to prevent errors? Uh, can you kind of elaborate on that?
1: Sure. So, errors in dosing occur commonly with, with warfarin because you could underdose or you could overdose that patient for a variety, variety of reasons. Oftentimes, initially, that patient um, will get the wrong dose of, a, of a warfarin because you're kind of making a guess on the dose that patient needs. So most initiation you know, protocols for warfarin will either tell you to use 5 milligrams or 10 milligrams of warfarin, check an INR in you know, two days, and then see what happens from there. And then you'll figure out the dose. Maybe it's too high, maybe it's too low. You, you bump the dose up by 15, 20% or decrease it by 15 to 20% based on how that patient responded and kind of go from there. So you're playing this guessing game constantly at the beginning of dosing warfarin. And so you really have to be careful with it and pay close attention uh, to what's going on, follow up with that patient, making sure that patient's educated on things that they need to that can increase or decrease that patient's INR level which are a variety of different things. That might be one of the other questions, but we can get into it now in terms of, you know, the education that that patient needs for warfarin, one being other medications. Um, Warfarin is a known drug interactor. You know, when I was teaching my students and residents at the the VA, always assume that a drug interacts with warfarin if you don't know. Just assume it. Just assume it does. And educate and look it up and figure out if it does or not, because more often than not, it's going to. So, that warfarin works in the liver, or works through the liver, metabolized through the liver. So many different enzymes that it works on to with the metabolism in the liver that all these other medications are competing or going through as well, that things get changed uh, quite a bit when that patient's on, you know, four, five, six different meds, which is often the case when they're taking warfarin, because it's not the only health problem that they're going to have by and large. Um, so, always, always, you know, educating about drug interactions. The other big piece that we talk about too with warfarin is diet. Like we talked about vitamin K, vitamin K containing food will work against you or will decrease the INR level. So it's harder to anticoagulate that patient and get to a, a consistent INR level or anticoagulation level. And so what you want to tell that patient is to be consistent with their vitamin K intake and the foods that often contain or that do contain vitamin K are green leafy vegetables, Red meats often contain it. Those are the kinds of things we typically think of and it tends to be healthier type of foods. So I always said, you know, it's terrible to tell a patient who, you know, just came in for a heart condition or something, AFib, something, stop eating all the healthy food, you know, and go back to eating the junk food because it doesn't have any vitamin K in it. <laughs> yeah. no, 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 consistent food. Consistent. You eat a salad a day, eat a salad a day. If you're eating, you know, three servings of vitamin K containing food, keep it that way. That's the easiest way to do it. And, and the, the whoever's managing the warfarin can adjust the dose around that interesting yeah and so we often see because of that the seasonal flares in INR so you might see a patient you know once their greens come in in the garden INR dips down but when in the winter they come you know it it, it goes back up so you got to be careful yeah yeah Yeah, so things, things to watch for Alcohol intake is another big one. Although of course, we want to recommend no alcohol intake with with warfarin, um, that can cause increases in INR, significant increases of in INR, especially in, in binge drinking episodes. Putting that uh, all the all the you know toxin in the liver can be can be very harmful. So keeping that to a minimum, if if possible, is always recommended. The other big thing is smoking, and smoking. When we think of smoking, of course, we want that patient to quit smoking, right? When we quit smoking, we encourage that patient to quit smoking, and they do, the INR will go down. So you have to really watch out for, for that patient. If they're quitting smoking, doing a great job doing that, We have to adjust the dose of, adjust of warfarin back up because that patient quit smoking. And so that happens with tobacco, mostly because of the impurities in tobacco. It's not the nicotine necessarily that's doing it, but the other impurities and things that are in tobacco that are causing it.
0: My clinical background is not as strong as anyone that I've interviewed and had on this podcast, but from what you're saying to me, I think a good relationship with your patient goes a long way, especially with
1: uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Follow-ups. In a very holistic uh you know, relationship with your patient, talking about diet, food, social determinants of health, not in, in addition to medicine and, and all the you know necessary things in, in when managing a patient with warfarin with lab draws and, and all that sort of stuff. Because if a patient can't travel to get to a lab draw, warfarin not going to be a very good yeah. option for that patient. Um, so it's a very holistic um, approach to to healthcare.
0: Yeah, for sure. You, hey, do you have a garden? Oh, that's good. Good to know. That's right. Good to know. Absolutely. So when we're talking about an inpatient versus outpatient setting, why is an INR greater than five just as important in? inpatient as it is in an outpatient.
1: Sure. Well, an INR, it's the same level of, you know, above no matter where that patient's at. So at the same risk of bleeding, no matter where that patient is at, is important. Um, same level of risk of bleeding. And so I think where this question might stem from, maybe that patient, you know, got admitted with an INR of six or seven. And that, you know, you have to report that because of the core measure, right? It's an, it's an INR above five, but it was nothing you did. Sure so I think that that's, you know, that, yeah, I get miffed at that too. Yeah. But, but I think, you know, we're going back to the patient and taking care of the patient is the most important thing versus anything else. And so if we take care of that patient appropriately, making sure that INR does come down and depending on, you know, maybe it's a, it's a life threatening type of the INR is above 10. Yeah. And we really need to make sure that we're reversing that one, or maybe it's between five and eight and patient's not at a high risk of bleeding Maybe we can watch that one. We can get an INR the next day or we can, you know, give them great education and great instructions on what to do and, and you know, figure out why that patient's INR went above five and give them the education so that that situation doesn't happen again.
0: Great. Well, Matt, thanks for being on the podcast today.
1: You bet. I think
0: we've covered pretty much everything that uh, we were supposed to cover today.
1: Lots of fun. That was well, a little more technical than the last one. Well, so.
0: you, you had me lost there for a few, <laughs> if you guys, a few minutes. But, you
1: know. If you guys have any questions, feel free to reach out
0: anytime. Yeah. We'll be happy to answer any questions. And if you have any topics that you'd like Matt and I to discuss, please let us know. And we'd be happy to discuss those. It's always nice to have Matt on the podcast. This is uh, one of many for sure. So uh, Matt, thanks again for being here and until next time. Thank you.